So let's go ahead and jump into our, our teaching for today. So uh, this summer we're going through a series in, in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, well, they're actually found in two places in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke. We're going to be looking at them in Matthew. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, the, uh, the first couple of Beatitudes today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. I'll give you a moment to uh, turn there if you want to follow along in your Bible. If you don't have your Bible with you or you're having trouble finding it, that's okay because we'll have the text on the screens next to me. So you can follow along there. Nobody will get left behind. I'll give you guys just a moment and then we'll get started. All right, well, it seems like we're all ready. So we'll go ahead and start this morning. Looking at Matthew chapter 5, I'm actually going to start by reading in verse 1, and then just to get the the intro there, and then into uh, the first couple of Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, the first two Beatitudes, those are the ones we're going to be looking at this morning. You know, it, <clears throat> it was a long time ago, but I, I once remember watching this video on YouTube. You know, one, one of these YouTuber guys who does all kinds of fun, cool tricks and all. And I was watching this video on YouTube of this guy who took a bicycle, and he reversed the steering on the bicycle. You, you guys follow who I'm saying? So, you know, you normally get on your bicycle, put your hand on the handlebars, and if you turn the handlebars to the right, the bike goes right, right? You turn the handlebars to the left and the bike goes left. And that, that's natural for all of us. And especially if, if you've learned how to ride a bike before, you don't even have to think about doing that, right? Whenever you're riding the bike, you just, your, your brain knows how to turn it and, and, and navigate your way on the bike, right? So what this guy did is, you know, he was an engineer of some sort and he figured out how to take the steering handle on the bike and reverse it so that whenever you turn the handlebars to the right, it actually went left. And if you wanted to go right, then you had to turn the handlebars to the left because he had reversed the steering because he wanted to see how hard was it going to be to learn how to ride the bike, right? How hard was it going to be for him to learn how to go where he wanted to go now? And what he found out was is that it was far more difficult than he imagined, that it was not only that he had to relearn how to steer the bike, he had to relearn how to ride it in general. He couldn't even get on the bike and, and, and go anywhere because all those little movements that, he, that you used to do to balance yourself were now all res, uh, reversed, right? And so not only could he not turn, but he couldn't ride it in general. And it took him a long period of time to now learn how to ride the bike again in this, in this new way of doing it. And that video is actually a lot like the Beatitudes, or I should say the Beatitudes are a lot like that. And that the Beatitudes are a complete reversal of the values of our worlds. What we see in the Beatitudes and really much in, in the Sermon on the Mount that comes afterwards, you know, the Beatitudes are just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Much of this is a reversal or it's, it, it is a, it's a turning around. It's a turning on its head of what our world values and what seems to be intuitive to our world, right? You're going to see this as we go through the Beatitudes every week, but, but especially today as we look at blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. You know, these are things which are, which are a complete reversal. They're the upside down of what our world values, of what our world calls being blessed, right? But Jesus says that it is these reversed values, right, according to 
according to the world, right? It is these values that make up the character of the kingdom. It is these values, it's these, or, or as we should say, characteristics that make up what the community of Jesus's kingdom should look like. And so, if we want to follow Jesus well, then we need to learn what these Beatitudes mean and then how to start to live them out in our life, all right? So, today we begin by looking at the first two. Uh, They are the first two, but they sort of go together, and you're going to see how that works here as we go through them. So, we're looking at blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. So, let's look at a couple of things. We're going to look at first the poor in spirit, what that means. Then we're going to look at those who mourn, what that means. And then finally, their reward. So for each of them in the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus follows this this pattern where he says, blessed are those, and then there's a reward for each one. We're going to look at the reward at the end. So first, we're just going to figure out what those mean, you know, what the part, the phrase comes after blessed, what that means, and then at the end, we'll look at their rewards briefly, okay? So let's start off by looking at the poor in spirit and consider what that means. Um. As a, as, a little, as a little test here, let, let's see. How many of you guys, by, by a raise of hands, how many of you guys understand what the phrase means if somebody told you to save the dishes? Anybody? Okay, some of us in here, if they told you to, uh, you know, save the clothes, save the toys, right? May, some of us in here do, some of us don't. Now, it, growing up, I, I didn't come from a very, uh, very strong Cajun background, okay? My, you know, my dad's from Texas, my mom is from Louisiana, but still not, not, a, not a super, super deep Cajun culture in my family. And so whenever I was a, a kid growing up, and I will go over to my friend's houses uh, in Lafayette, and they, were coming, they came from family backgrounds which were uh, much, much more deeply into or, or from a Cajun heritage, I remember being at my friend's house and eating dinner, and then at the end of the dinner, my, my friend's mom saying, all right, save the dishes. Now, I had no idea what this meant because, like I said, I didn't come from a Cajun background, and so this vernacular was alien to me. And so I'm sitting there confused as, like, save them from what? <laughs> right? This confused me for so long, but what this means in Cajun culture is, like, to put it up. Right? Like after you clean the dishes, then you put them away in the cabinet. You put them where they're supposed to go. Uh, if a kid's playing their toys and they say, save the toys, they don't mean somebody's coming to get your toys. <laughs> they mean put them in the, in the, in the you know, boxes and things in the closets that they belong into. Right? And so in order to understand my friend's family I had to, and, and to understand Cajuns in general, that's been a long learning curve for me. Right? Uh, luckily, I'm married into a Cajun family, so that's been a big help for me. But... Um, you know, so I like to say I'm a Cajun by marriage now. Uh, but if you want to understand the, those, you know, that culture well, then you understand the vernacular. And if we want to understand Jesus, and if we want to follow him, and if we want to live in the community that he describes here, then we need to understand his vernacular as well. And whenever we come to the phrases that he uses, we need to make sure that we, that we ask the question, of, okay, what did he mean whenever he said this? What was he, what was he trying to get across and not just maybe what, what is our initial, you know, uneducated guess on what he meant by, but what, what did he mean? And I think that's really important for us to consider and, and think about as we approach the first beatitude here, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. What did Jesus mean in, in his vernacular? What does he mean by being poor in spirit? Here's what he means. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you this point, this explanation, and then, and then walk through, okay? So first... The poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their moral status before God. That is what Jesus means by poor in spirit. The poor in spirit 
are those who acknowledge their moral status before God. So whenever Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, or like I said, there's two places where we have the Beatitudes in the Gospels here in, in Matthew and then also in Luke. Luke only says, blessed are the poor. Okay, so he doesn't even include that in spirit phrase like Matthew does here. So in both circumstances, it's really important that we understand, okay, what is he getting at? He's talking about something that is more than just talking about a, a financial poverty. Whenever Jesus says blessed are the poor here, he's not talking about those who, uh, who are financially poor or do not have a lot of resources or whatever else. That's not the kind of poverty that he's talking about here. He's drawing on an idea that was developed from the Old Testament, okay? So in the Old Testament, you have this idea that, that's especially you see being, being formulated and developed like in the Psalms and in, in Isaiah, okay? Because you can go and read the Psalms, and you see David, uh, who wrote many, he wrote the most Psalms. You can go and read some of David's Psalms where he describes himself as being poor, or he describes himself as if he is a, a poor person in Israel, and that's kind of an odd thing to, to do if you consider that he was writing this as the king, right? Now, now some, of the, some of the psalms he wrote, technically he wrote before he was king because, you know, some of the psalms he wrote while he was running away from, from Psalm, uh, Saul, right? But if you consider that he was the king and yet still crying out to God, uh, describing himself in terms of being one of the poor of Israel, then you understand here, okay, obviously he's talking about something. He's talking about a type of poverty that is not just a financial poverty or not having wealth. He's talking about something else. What we see happening in the Old Testament is, is this idea of that the poor are those who have no refuge in this world other than God. Okay, so it is an idea that's drawn from the experience of being financially poor. You know, imagine if you are in a, in a place of financial poverty that your only recourse is to go and depend upon your parents. Like you were when you were a child, or, or maybe, you know, you go through a hard time as an adult, as a college student, or, or at another point, and you have to go to a family member, whether it's a parent or someone else, because you have no other recourse but to go and put yourself before them and say, I need help in this, because of the situation that, I in, that I'm in. It's from that same kind of experience that this idea of what it means to be poor was developed in the Old Testament, which goes beyond just finances, to seeing that in the whole of your life, that you have no other refuge to run to, you have no other recourse in your life but to depend upon God. To be poor is to be someone who has no refuge other than God so that your total reliance is upon him. And specifically, precisely what this means is in terms of your righteousness or in terms of your moral status before God. That is what being poor in spirit means. Uh, the great... Uh, minister and commentator John Stott wrote this. He said, thus, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy before God. To recognize that in terms of our moral status, right, in terms of our moral status, our, the, the spiritual wealth that we have to offer God to say, you know, here's how I have merited relationship with you, or here's how I have, I have merited, or here's how I can pay my way into your kingdom. To be spiritually poor is to understand that you are spiritually bankrupt before him. You have no uh, moral merit. You have no moral riches of your own to be able to bring before him and say, here's how I can pay my way into the kingdom. This is what it means to be spiritually poor. And when we look at scripture, we can see many, many examples 
of people in Scripture who were spiritually poor. Let me just give you a few different examples. So, so consider Abraham. In Genesis 18, uh, God comes down with a couple of angels, and he says that they need to go over to Sodom and Gomorrah because they have heard a cry of injustice reaching out to them. So they're going to go and see if, if it, this cry of injustice is true, and they bring about judgment, right? But before they go, Abraham pleads with them to spare the city. And so he goes and he pleads, and he says, well, if you find, uh, you know, uh, 50 righteous men there, we spare the city and, and God says to him, if I find 50 righteous, well, then I'll spare the city. He says, well, hold on. What if you only find 40 righteous people, right? And so he keeps going down and down in his number, uh, pleading with God. And at one point in the conversation, it says, then Abraham answered as he's pleading with him, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes. Notice that phrase right there, he, whatever he says, I'm coming to you and pleading to you, asking for you to, you know, on behalf of that city to spare them. He says, but I recognize that I am pleading before you, even though I am like dust and ashes before you. What he's saying there is, I am pleading this case before you purely on the basis of your own mercy, not because I've earned the right to plead this case. He was poor in spirit. He said, there's nothing in me that has, that has merited you listening to me. I'm just appealing to your grace, to your mercy. That's what Abraham means. He was poor in spirit. And consider Moses. Whenever Moses was called by God to be the leader that he was raising up to bring the people of Israel out of their slavery in the land of Egypt, Moses says to God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He saw himself, in one sense, there, there, he saw himself as, as being completely unworthy to be called by God, and he recognized that before God, whenever God was calling him. He was poor in spirit. Or consider Paul. There's so many examples that you can look at in, in Acts and Paul's epistles where you can see him talking about being poor in spirit. How, you know, he wrote in one of his epistles that he was the chief of all sinners or that he was the least of all the apostles. But whenever I really think about Paul describing how he was poor in spirit, I think of Philippians chapter 3. What he does in Philippians chapter 3 is he goes through the list of all the things that had made him righteous. He went through his moral resume, so to speak. You know, he said, I was uh, an, an Israelite of Israelites, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said, I followed the law better than anyone else. He said, I followed the law better than you. I followed the law better than any other Pharisee. You know, he just goes through this long list of all the things that have made him a good person. But then he gets to this point in Philippians 3, 7, where he says, but everything that was a gain to me, Right, talking about all those things that made him a good person. He said, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. You see, here's what he's describing. He says, those things that I once thought had made, up, had made me financially rich, I realized that I was bankrupt before Christ. He said, more than that, I also consider everything, once again, he's talking about all those moral credits, to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. That is what it means to be poor in spirit, to look at your moral resume, 
to look at all, all the, the things that you might look at it and say, you know, this is my righteousness, or these are all the reasons that, that God should accept me, or that, I, or that I might, you know, earn his love, or, or you know, get an entrance into heaven, to see all those things, and just like Paul said, and understand those things that I once thought were my gain, or my benefit, or my wealth, were actually lost. They were nothing. They could not give me an entrance into the kingdom. And here's something that we should recognize about this beatitude and this theme that we see in all of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that being poor in spirit, or, or especially, I should say, blessed are the poor in spirit, that this is confrontational to our world. This is a confrontation to our world to say that, it is, that those who are poor in spirit are actually the blessed ones. Think about this. Have you ever heard the objection to Christianity before, or the, Christian, uh, the, the critique to Christianity before, that Christianity is just a spiritual crutch, right? Have you ever heard that before? You know, Christianity is just a spiritual crutch. It's just for people who, who need all that gobbledygook about, uh, about a father in the sky who loves them and who's going who's gonna to give them everything they need and who's going to bring them to heaven wherever they can't do it for themselves. It's, it's just a spiritual crutch. Now, here's the thing about that critique, if you think about it, right? On the one hand, if you really analyze that critique, it's kind of odd. Because if you see, you know, uh, if you see somebody come in here with, uh, with, with a cast around their leg and they're walking on a crutch, would anybody here mock that person? I'd hope not, right? You know, or, uh, or whatever, many of you guys know that, that, our, that our worship leader and one of our elders, Lagan, was in, was in a horrible accident several, many years ago, and one day he showed up to church in a, in a wheelchair after his accident. God had miraculously saved him from what should have been death, right? But instead, he, you know, so he showed up to church in a wheelchair, and let me tell you, whenever he showed up in his wheelchair, nobody pointed the finger and laughed or mocked him because he was in that wheelchair because if somebody needs that crutch or wheelchair, then having it is a good thing. And you see, I think that that's, that's really the assumption beneath this critique that really reveals the heart of Christianity's confrontation with the world. That there's nothing wrong with a crutch, but that crutches or wheelchairs or whatever else are only for the cripple. Crutches are only for the cripple. And here's the thing. No one in our world, no other religion in this world, no other philosophy, no other culture has seen it as, as, as a value to esteem and raise up to be a cripple to be a moral cripple, right? Hasn't, hasn't the goal of every other world religion uh, is through, through all, all time and culture until Christianity, hasn't the goal to make you spiritually strong, right? To make you spiritually good. The whole point is not blessed are the cripple, right? But bad news, woe to the cripple. It's bad for you. And so here are some rules that you need to follow, Here's some steps that you need to take so that you might go from your cripple or weak or poor status to a strong status, to a, a status where you can stand on your own moral ground. No one in our world today, even in the 21st century, America today, right? No one in, in America today, in Lafayette today, whether they are religious or non-religious, wants to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a spiritual cripple. I'm morally bankrupt. This is why people look down on Christianity saying that, you know, it's only a crutch for the weak. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, blessed are those moral cripples who recognize that their only hope is the crutch that I can provide. And here's the thing. He doubles down on this. And in Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 2, 17, Jesus says, It is not the well who are need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Once again, Jesus is saying, my focus, my kingdom, right? The new community that I am building and those who will one day have a seat at my table is not the healthy, but the sick. Not not the strong runner, but the cripple, right? Not the righteous, but the sinners. Those are the ones who I have come to call. You see, so being poor in spirit is a challenge to all of our creeds of self-reliance. Whether they're religious creeds of self-reliance of here's how you can build, here's how you can climb the ladder to heaven through good works and, and, and steps of religiosity. Or whether it's just through, you know, the, the more secular uh, steps of righteousness that people in our culture tell you to take, right? So here's, here's how you be a, a self-respecting person through your self-reliance, right? Building yourself up, raising yourself up by your own bootstraps. Being poor in spirit is a confrontation to those things. Like I said, the Beatitudes are a reversal of our world's values. So let me ask you, let me ask you this as, as an application before we move on. Lately, have you compared yourself to those poor in spirit in Scripture? In Scripture, we're warned, uh, we're, we're, we're admonished to weigh ourselves against the standard of God's word. And we have all these, these characters here, like I pointed out, in, in Abraham, Moses, Paul, and, and you can find so many other examples of descriptions of what it looks like in a person's life or whenever the writers of the New Testament tell us of here's what it looks like for those who are poor in spirit. Have you weighed yourself against those standards lately? Have you, looked, have you compared yourself to Paul whenever, in Romans chapter 7, whenever he, he cries out, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. Wherever he looks at his inability to walk in the spirit as he wants to, to walk in obedience to God as he desires to, and instead keeps giving into the sin that in his heart he does not want to do. And so he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Whenever he recognizes his inability in and of himself to be morally who he ought to be. How often in your daily life do you, do you consider yourself and your struggle to obey and you're giving into temptation, right? And you're falling into sin and say, oh, wretched man or woman that I am. And you recognize your bankruptcy before God. How often do you do this? Look, I'm not saying that, that Christians are people who, who, who walk around with this dark cloud constantly hanging over them. And that Christians are not the kind of people who walk around with woe is me constantly on their lips or, or, or lashing themselves on the back. That's not what I'm describing here. But on the other hand, there does need to be a serious, careful examination of our hearts for spiritual pride, for some of that spiritual richness, right, that says, well, no wonder God chose me, right? Well, of course I'm better than that person or, or these people. Or I've got my life a lot more together than, than them, and so then that, that builds up a little bit of a sense of spiritual wealth in you rather than saying, like Paul, everything that I thought was gain, I count as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth 
of receiving the gift of righteousness that comes from Christ and not one that I build on my own. So be careful to regularly examine yourself. Allow scripture to shine a light on your heart. And and in prayer with the Holy Spirit, knowing that you are secure in God's grace, examine yourself for that heart, okay? Because here's the thing. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you are following Jesus, if if his blood has paid for your sins, well, then there's no safer place to be to do this kind of self-examination. Friend, if you find some spiritual pride in your heart, God's not going to kick you out. You're secure in his grace. You've been saved by his grace. It's an opportunity to, to if you find it, oh, okay, let's deal with it. Let's repent of it. Let, let's get it out of here. Where, where did it come from? How did it develop? It's like finding a weed in, the, in your flower bed, right? If you find a weed in the flower bed, do you then take all the other good fruits and say, well, we got to rip them all up now? <laughs> no, God's not going to take the good fruits He's not going to take the, the spiritual life that he has placed into you and, and the, the fruits of the gospel that he has brought out. He's not going to rip them all up because in prayer you find a weed with him. No. You're secure with him. Pluck those weeds and allow the good fruits and the beautiful things that God is doing you to continue growing. So, the poor in spirit. Well, but what about those who mourn? Here's what we what we should see, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty common sense after you consider it this way. Those who mourn is really the natural next step after being poor in spirit, right? Technically, there are two individual beatitudes because Jesus does say, blessed are before each one of them. But as I've been researching, virtually all commentators and scholars agree that even though the two individual ones, they really should be, we should read them as a pair um, that Jesus intended for them to be a pair because they go together. Because if you recognize that you are poor in spirit and that you are spiritually bankrupt, then you should mourn over your state, right? Uh, imagine this. Imagine that you receive some kind of terrible news. You receive some kind of terrible, life-changing news, and you have no emotional response to it. That'd be odd, right? Imagine, you receive, imagine somebody tells you, you have to move to Baton Rouge, And you have no response, right? That would be bad. That would be odd. You should have, you should have a, 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 an emotional response in, 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 whenever you receive some kind of terrible, life-changing news. That's a silly one, right? But, I mean, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Uh, no, but, the doctor tells you you have, you have a disease. You have a month, maybe two. And you say, okay, a month. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not good. Somebody says to you, hey, your house burned down. You lost everything. You're penniless. You're homeless now. And you say, okay, homeless. Right? No, that, that's, that is, that's bad, right? You know, like that, that's, that's beyond just having like security in God, right? That's, that's pathological, okay? I, I'm not a professional therapist, but I believe they call that denial, right? Whatever that would be, that emotional response. If you have terrible news, life-changing news, bad news, there should be an emotional response afterwards. And so if you receive the news and if you acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt before God, right, then that should lead you to then mourn over your sinfulness before him. You see, that's what it means. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. We should read it and understand as the poor in spirit who mourn over their sin, right? The poor in spirit who mourn over their status before God. And so here's the the second big point. Those who mourn 
are they who are broken over their sinful status before God. Those who mourn are they who are broken over their sinful status before God. Um, God does care about your wounds and your burdens. He does care about, about the hurts that you carry, right? One of the most beautiful statements from the lips of the incarnate God was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden. Take on my, my yoke, for it is easy, right? Um, he cares about the, the hurts and woes and wounds and burdens of your heart, right? But whenever Jesus is talking about mourning here, he's not talking about that kind of mourning, okay? He is talking about the mourning that comes over brokenness because of sin. He is talking about a contrition over your sin, a brokenness knowing that you have, you have transgressed the law of God, but that you have also assaulted the heart of God. That, that the good Father, the eternal sovereign Lord, who has blessed you with everything that you have, and who has given you all things good, and who desires nothing but a relationship with you in return. You have broken that relationship with him. You have sinned against his heart. The contrition that comes from recognizing that reality is the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. Here's a good way to understand it. Blessed are those who mourn is the emotional counterpart to the moral reality of being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is the moral status. Mourning is the emotional counterpart the emotional experience in, rela- in relation to being poor in spirit, broken before God. And so let me ask you this as an application. Have you mourned over your sinfulness? Have you mourned over your sinfulness? Or have you just presumed upon the kindness of God that your sinfulness is not a big deal? I know that some of us very often, and myself included in this, will tend to sometimes cheapen grace whenever we lack a mournfulness over our sin, just saying, oh, well, grace will cover it, right? But not recognizing that that our sin, that every sin from from the most uh, gross acts to the darkest thoughts, wherever they might be, is an assault on our good, loving Lord. They are a perversion before our holy, holy, holy God, right? But so often we don't, rec- we don't really consider the seriousness, the darkness of the reality of our poverty of spirit before God, and so then we don't mourn. If you're not mourning over your sin, there's three other possibilities. The first one is this, that you might be in denial. I made a joke about denial earlier, but there's also a serious kind. You might be in denial over the reality of your status before God outside of Christ. Right? You might, you might be in denial about just how severely you need the grace of God, thinking that, you know, well, I think I'm doing okay, and I'm getting by with, without you know, this submitting to Christ as Lord, as you talk about, or being saved, or, you know, all these Christian things, they sound good, and I'm on board with that enough to be here in church and listen about it, but to really commit my life over to it, I think I'm doing okay, and I'm doing my best as much as anybody else, right? That, that's a state of denial over the desperate situation that you are in 
if you have not given your life over to Christ, received his grace, and now are following him as an obedient disciple. Friend, there is no other option out of total commitment to to Christ as Lord and Savior. You might be in denial about your situation. The second one is this. Some of you, some of us, might become cynical. So often we quit mourning over our sin because we have become cynical about falling into it again and again. Some of you guys have been walking with Christ for a while. You've been trying to, to, to walk in obedience, and you start to feel somewhat like Paul, somewhat like Paul, where you say, why is it that the things that I want to do, I cannot do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing? And then after a season of continuing to do the things that you don't want to do, you just start to become cynical and say, well, I'm never going to change, right? This sin's never going to go away. I'm never going to receive victory over it. You're not necessarily living in denial. You, you, you haven't necessarily walked away from faith or have, or have rejected that, you know, the grace of God or the gospel, but you're just starting to allow yourself to be stuck, saying, well, nothing in my life's ever going to change. You might be cynical, and that cynicism is preventing you from mourning as you should of your sin, which then in that mourning would bring you closer to the heart of God and his grace. The third one is that you might be complacent. So often, many of us just become complacent. It's very similar to denial, where we think that maybe it's just not that big a deal, or maybe we've lost a sense of the amazing, the, the, the amazingness of God's grace. Like I said, the Beatitudes are a reversal. They're a turning on its head of all of our world's values because of this. It's not just a list of poor in spirit, mourning, the humble, the persecuted. But before each one of those, Jesus says, blessed, and afterwards he says there's going to be a reward. He doesn't just say the poor in spirit are out there. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And for each one of them, he says, there's going to be a reward. He says, For the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And for for those who mourn, he says, they will be comforted. This is what makes them the great reversal, is that whenever Jesus says blessed, right, to put that in different terms, what he's saying is happy. That's really what what, what they would have heard in, in that day and what he was getting across is happy are those. So he's saying happy are those who are poor in spirit. That makes no sense to us. Happy are those who, are, who mourn. How can that make any sense? Happy, blessed are those who mourn, and, and the kingdom of heaven is going to belong to these kind of people? How? What kind of sense does that make? Well, here's, here's why. Because here's what Jesus is saying. The reason he can say blessed and happy are the poor in spirit who mourn is this. He says, for those who have no chance or ability... No hope beyond their wildest imagination. The kingdom of heaven is open to them. And that's why he can say blessed. That's why he can say happy. Right? Because how happy of a situation is it? And how how blessed of news is it to hear that for those who have no chance or ability to earn their way into heaven or to receive a seat at God's table, that now the doors are open to them, right? 
if you recognize your desperate situation before God, but then hear that news, that's going to make you happy, right? So happy are those who are poor in spirit and who, and who mourn. But here's how it is made possible, and here's the reason why those people might be happy. Because he who is rich, that being Jesus, because Jesus who is rich in spirit became poor on our behalf. The poor in spirit will be welcomed into God's kingdom. Because he who is rich in spirit became poor on our behalf, the poor in spirit will be welcomed into God's kingdom. The only way to make sense of this reversal of our world's values is to view them all in light of the gospel. That Jesus who who earned his moral status before God, who is rich in spirit, became poor for us, so that, so that we who are poor could never earn our way, can never buy our ticket into heaven, right? Might receive the blessing and that, that rich moral status that was his. And so, truly, the poor in spirit might receive the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you just a couple of practical applications based off of these things. The reward for those who mourn, Jesus says, is that they will be comforted. Now, that makes a lot of sense in light of the gospel, right? Because if you mourn over your sin, you will be comforted to find out that Christ has paid for your sin. That as Paul said in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation for them. None at all. And then as he says at the end of that chapter, that for, for those who are in Jesus, there is nothing in this world. He says no angel or demon, no power in heaven or earth. There is no uh, amount of vast separation that could come in between us and the love of God for us. There is no greater comfort in this world for a heart that is broken over sin than seeing the love of God displayed for you in the bleeding Savior. But this is also the antidote for your insecurities and for, as we call it today, low self-esteem, right? Because so many of you guys and so many of us often continue, even as Christians, to, to walk in this world with all kinds of insecurities. And we, we continue to walk in this world with a, this idea of, of woe is me upon ourselves, right? You remember I, I talked about that earlier. That's not being poor in spirit. The insecurities that we carry is not being poor in spirit. And, and that's not the kind of mourning that we're supposed to be going after. But the key to that, what our world will tell you is that if you have insecurities and low self-esteem, well, you just need to love yourself more. But that is not the answer. That will not help you to overcome your insecurities. That will not free you from your, your people-pleasing tendencies. That will not help you to overcome low self-esteem. The antidote to low self-esteem is the same antidote for those who are mourning. To not love yourself more, but to lean into the love of Christ proven for you. And look, if you can lean into God's acceptance of you based upon just his loving grace for you, not because you have earned it, accomplished in the work of Christ, if you could lean into that and receive that, well then, how much is the opinion of other people going to matter to you anymore? That insecurity that you're carrying around and the fragility that you have to your, to your own you know, sense of peace based off of, off of how people re react to you or respond to you or view you. 
And, you know, if they look at you well, well then you're on top of the world. And, and if your reputation is slighted, well, then you crumble like china glass, right? right? How much more sturdy and secure could you become if you no longer depended upon the opinions of other people, but you rested secure in God's opinion over you, that he has loved you and accepted you just as you are because of the work accomplished by his son. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. For those of you who continue walking in, in, in low self-esteem, uh, insecurities, the answer for that, for, for you to overcome those things is in that as well. The last thing is this, is that we must always be on alert for spiritual pride. In other words, the Christian life is not just recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy and then moving on from that, but it is a constant learning how to live in that reality. Now, here's what I, what I don't mean by this. Being poor in spirit does not mean that you say, okay, so I have, I have nothing to offer God. I, ha, I, ha, I have no way of earning my way into heaven. So I just need to receive his gift, you know, and then, and then stay, uh, you know, absolutely worthless before him, right? Because the goal of the Christian life is that you would be given this great blessing of the gospel, but then through walking with Christ, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, you would, you would, slowly, you, you would slowly take that crutch that he gave you to walk upon and, and, and through his transforming grace become someone who can walk alongside of him. You know, maybe, maybe a better, better metaphor is like, if any of you guys have young children, you know, watching that, that fragile, helpless baby who can't do anything on their own slowly turn into the kind of person who can hold a spoon, and then the kind of person who can hold their head up on their own, you know, they're kind of wobbly, but they're holding it up. And then they can sit up and then they can take a couple of steps and then jump and walk and run. And they, and they fall. They fall a lot. OK, but every time they fall, you're there to pick them back up and put them on their feet. You see, you enter the Christian life like that baby. Right. But then but then God, the father is there to pick you up and put you on your feet and to hold and to hold your little hands with, with his fingers as, as you learn how to walk and as you grow and mature and become more and more of the person that he has called you and designed you to be. No, at no point through that journey have you become the person who earned that ability, right? Because you owe your, your whole existence, just like that child owes their whole existence to their parent. So you, you owe your whole ability to even have the privilege of learning to be someone to, who can walk alongside Christ, to God who planted that new life inside of you that you're now learning to walk in, right? But after receiving that gift, you learn to walk in it, okay? On that journey, you always need to be alert for spiritual pride. The gospel is not opposed to effort because there should be effort involved in growing in Christ, but the gospel is opposed to the temptation to admire our supposed merit. Let me end with what Charles Spurgeon said about living in the kingdom. He said, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. And so there's the paradox of the Christian life. We grow in the kingdom in greater proportion as we sink and deepen in our own humility before God who has blessed us with the life that we now live in. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray 
and confess that we often have lived with spiritual pride, Lord. We have not been people who see ourselves as poor in spirit before you, Lord, but we have tried instead to rest and stand upon our merits and our uh, moral pedigrees, Lord. And how often we have slipped back and fallen into that mindset that we need to that we need to earn your love, that we need to achieve some status in order to receive your grace, Lord. We confess these things before you, Father, and, and ask that you would uh, give to us that, that mind and that heart of being poor in spirit, and that we would rest in that as we, whenever we mourn over our sin, Lord, so that you would comfort us and that we might receive your grace. And Lord, as we continue to to fight against sin, to mourn wherever we fall into it, Lord, that you would keep picking us up and teaching us to be people who, who, can, who can walk and who can run and, and to become the people that you have designed us to be. Lord, we thank you for that gift and opportunity that's only possible in the gospel. And we thank you that we're secure to learn how to walk and to trip and fall and to and to see the weeds that are growing in the garden and to pluck them out. We're secure to do all these things because our salvation has been accomplished by Christ. It is safe in your hands, Lord, and there is nothing that we can do to remove it. And so now, uh, in the context of that grace, Lord, as we are constantly surrounded by your steadfast love, we, we learn to walk and we learn to kill sin and we, and we uh, lean more and more and more into your love that comforts our hearts. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.